If you have a Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah. We're going to look at this book together. And while you're turning there, I wish I had a picture or a video of this, but I wonder if you remember about two years ago in Lebanon, in the city of Beirut, you remember that explosion at the seaport that took place? I remember watching that. There's a real brief video of, of it. And it doesn't seem real. Just all of a sudden at this seaport, there's this explosion that just creates this massive ripple effect that just wiped out a large portion of Beirut. 6,500 people were injured. 200 people lost their lives. It was just a big story at the time, this tragedy that going on. I remember reading about it and watching some things on the news about it and just how devastating. And while I was watching that, at the time I was preaching through the book of Nehemiah at Living Hope. And I was thinking about the fact that it was about 2,500 years ago in a city very close to Beirut, a city about 150 miles away, the city of Jerusalem, had also been reduced to rubble, a city that was just completely destroyed, a completely devastated city that needed to be rebuilt. And the, the, the city of Beirut a couple years ago when all this was going on, I remember hearing about buildings and homes and businesses and, and seaports and ships and apartments and all these things that are destroyed. But then the people talking about the lives that were destroyed. You see, buildings can be rebuilt, but, but what about the lives that were destroyed? What about the husband uh, whose wife worked with the fire department in Beirut, who was working in that area and was killed in the destruction? I also read a letter that a pastor in the city of Beirut wrote, and I'll just read a brief bit of it, but his church was destroyed. The building itself was destroyed. It was a quarter of a mile away from where the explosion took place. And he wrote these words. So much relief work is needed. So much needs to be rebuilt. So many families will need long-term care. But I believe, as I first did when planting our church, that Beirut's greatest hope isn't a stable economy or honest politicians, but blood-bought believers who carry with them the hope and power of the gospel. Nothing, no recession, no explosion, no devastation can thwart the power of King Jesus to build his church. Amen. You know, that's what the book of Nehemiah is about. The book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding, it's about restoring, and it's about renewing. More than that, it's about a God who does that. A God who restores, a God who renews, and a God who rebuilds from the ruins. And I wonder how many of us sitting here today, since our need for renewal, since our need for a revival. I mean, we faced many challenges, haven't we? Especially in the last couple years. And so many changes. I mean, so many things that seemed stable and durable. Maybe you look around and you see those things kind of crumbled all around you in ruins. Well, I want to say to you this morning that the book of Nehemiah has a good word for all of us today. Because it's about a God who renews, a God who restores and a God who rebuilds from the ruins. Now, sometimes you can preach a sermon in one verse. And sometimes you can preach one sermon, preaching it from an entire book. And that's what I'd like to try to do today. Now, I don't know what the world record is here at Faith Church for the longest sermon preached. But my view is, is that records were made to be broken. Okay? 
So whatever that is, I'm hoping to crush that today with you. No, in all seriousness, I want to be a good steward of your time and look at this, but the whole book of Nehemiah, I think, is going to be a part of what this message is about today. And in order for us to understand this God that renews, restores, and rebuilds, we need to understand something about the book of Nehemiah. Why is it in the Bible? What were the circumstances surrounding it? Well, you know that the people of God, the nation of Israel, they experienced their greatest time of influence and power during the reign of David and David's son, Solomon. But when Solomon dies, the kingdom begins to decline, and eventually the kingdom splits. The kingdom splits into what's called a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And they have a divided kingdom. And eventually both sides of this divide go away from God. And God sends judgment upon them. He punishes them because of their sin. He sends them away into exile or captivity in order to show them what their sin has cost them. They become slaves to another nation and others come to live into their own land. But God in his mercy regathers them back to their land. He said after 70 years, he was going to call them from the four regions of the earth, so to speak, from north, south, east, and west. And he was going to regather them and bring them back to their land and to himself. And that's what happens in the book of Ezra. And you really can't read Nehemiah without understanding something about Ezra. It really should be read together, Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra, the book, really tells the story of the people coming back after those 70 long years. And just think about that. Think about having to leave your home. Think about some other nation coming to live at your property and living and sleeping in your home. And then after 70 years, your children getting to come back to the land. And that's what happens in the book of Ezra. The first thing they do is they rebuild the altar. Then they rebuild the temple. And that's what happens in the book of Ezra. And then sometime later, when you get to the book of Nehemiah, the temple has been rebuilt, the altar has been rebuilt, but the city itself is still in ruins. The wall that is around the city to protect it, the gates that are there to keep out those that shouldn't be in there, all of that has been destroyed. And Nehemiah hears about this and his heart is broken. And that's where we begin. Look with me at Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came. He and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in a province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, there, I think there are four sections in the book of Nehemiah. And so I have four points for you today. Uh, Nehemiah 1 through 3 is the first section. Nehemiah 4 through 6 is the second. Nehemiah 7 through 10 is the third. And then Nehemiah 11 through 13 is the last section. And let's look at this together as we learn about a God who renews, restores, and rebuilds. Number one, the first thing we learn from Nehemiah is that sin is what ruins, but God is what restores. Sin ruins, but God restores. Now, Nehemiah 
is not a king. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's a cupbearer. And he's a cupbearer for a pagan King Artaxerxes from the Persian King Artaxerxes. Now, don't make a second. It doesn't sound like an important job, but he did have an important job. He was a government official. He was somebody well trusted. He was very close to the probably the most powerful man in the region, King Artaxerxes. But he's not a priest. He's not a king of Israel. He's not a prophet. He's a common man who's a government official now, a Jewish man as a government official in the Persian Empire. And when he hears the distress that the people of God are in in Jerusalem, that they're a laughing stock, that their homes are not protected, that people are coming and plundering their things. He's broken by this. And he really does five things. He sits down. He weeps. He mourns for certain days. He fasts and he prays. And you have to understand something about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not nostalgic He's not saying, oh, I want the city of Jerusalem to look like it used to look. Oh, those walls were so great. The gates were so beautiful. No, he knows that broken down walls and burned gates are a symptom of a deeper problem, a broken people. The broken walls and the broken gates were a symptom of a broken people. And Nehemiah did more than pray, but that's where it always starts. John Bunyan said that you and I can do more than pray after we've prayed, but we can't do more than pray until we've prayed. And Nehemiah is a great example of that. He begins always in prayer, but then he moves to action. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets permission to do so. He surveys the area. He develops a plan. He gathers the people together. And with God's spirit upon him, look what happens in verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's word that he had spoken unto me. And they said... Let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hand for this good work. And I, what I find so encouraging about this is Nehemiah is not a king. He's a cupbearer. And it teaches us that you don't have to be a king or a prophet or a priest to be used by God. He was a cupbearer with a burdened heart that God's hand was upon. And I wonder if there's some here today and God has been working in your heart about maybe your own personal revival or maybe the church that you look around you or the people around you or maybe you see people's lives who've been ruined by sin and, and you think, I can't be indifferent. I, I can't be apathetic to this. That's what Nehemiah 1 through 3 teaches us, that sin ruins, but it's God through us who renews. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope you understand that we're not gathered here today because we, all of us in here, think that we are better than everyone else out there. If, if that's what you think, then you are mistaken. This is not a self-righteous club that gets together every Sunday to talk about how good we are and how bad all of them are out there. No, we gather here together because we talk about one who is perfect. And he's the invisible one that none of us can see with our eye. You see, we are here today because all of us, every single one of us, have been ruined beyond anything we can do to repair ourselves. We couldn't salvage our lives or do anything to bring about the repair that was needed. But God has sent his son into the world to redeem us, to renew us, 
to restore his life, to restore our lives. And that by his grace, he has done that and he is doing that. And if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus alone, the one who lived the life that you have failed to live, the one who died the death that you deserve to die, and the one who conquered the enemy that you fear the most when he rose again from the dead and conquered death, that is the one who we celebrate and who we worship and who we adore. He is the one who will save and redeem you because sin ruins, but God renews. That's what Nehemiah 1 through 3 tells us. Number two, what we learn from the book of Nehemiah in chapters 4 through 6, that if you want to build for God, expect to find yourself in battles. That building for God always comes with battles. That if you're going to work for God, you're going to be in war as well. Now, Nehemiah faces all kinds of opposition. Let me just name a couple. He first of all faces what we can call external opposition. I'm meaning opposition from those who are not a part of the people of God. People who are not a part of God's family. Perhaps you've heard in the book of Nehemiah about the terrible trio, we can call them. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These are the constant enemies of Nehemiah and the people of God. And notice, we, we first read about them in chapter 2, verse 19. It says this, When Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, there's the terrible trio, the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn, and despised us, and said, What is this thing that you do? They begin to mock them. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says that Sanballat, when he heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth. He's angry. He took great indignation. He mocks the Jews. They, they begin to mock them, discredit them. But look at chapter 4, verse 9. And I want you to see how Nehemiah goes about resisting this opposition. Verse 9 says, nevertheless, in other words, through all of this opposition they're facing from external opponents, nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night. And then I love what it says in verse 17 and 18. Same chapter, chapter 4. They which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens, or those that carried the equipment, with those that laid it, everyone with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. So here it is. They're working on this wall. They're rebuilding it. And with one hand, they're holding a tool so they can work. And another hand, they have a weapon ready for warfare. They're building, but they're also ready for the battle. They're praying first because Nehemiah understood what we learn in the New Testament. That the real warfare is not fought with flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this world. But we see this external threat that they're facing. But it's not just this external threat. Chapter 5 tells us about this internal opposition that they're facing. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Please notice this carefully. I don't think this is as familiar to most of us. Verse 1, Nehemiah 5. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. Now, what's going on here? Well, because the people are working day and night all the time to rebuild the wall, they don't have time to harvest their own crops in their own land. 
So they're working all the, they, all the time that they have on the wall, but they still have to feed their families. They still have to provide for their children. And so when it comes time for them to have food, when it comes time for them to have what they need, they're lacking. They don't have the money or the resources. And what's happening is the vast majority are poor and there's a handful of those wealthy Jewish families. And those wealthy Jewish families are taking advantage of the poor. They're saying things like this, yeah, we'll give you grain, but you have to sell us your land. We'll give you what you need to feed your family, but you have to give us your homes and you have to sell your children to us as slaves for a season. That's the complaint that's going on here. They're crying out against their own brothers. Now, this is a silly illustration, but imagine that you're at home with your spouse and your family's there and you realize that someone's trying to break into your home and you look at your spouse and you say, quick, Go make sure that all the doors are locked and get the kids all together in one place. I'm going to call 911. And your spouse looks at you and says, okay, I'll do that. If you promise that for the next six months, you're going to do all the laundry, all the dishes, all the lawn care, all the oil changes, all the vacuuming, and all the diapers. And you're thinking to yourself, like, what? We're in a crisis here. And you're going to use this to somehow take advantage. You say, how silly is that? How crazy is that? It's exactly what's happening in Nehemiah 5. All the people are in a crisis and those with the most are taking advantage of those with the least. Friends, it's one thing for us to fight a spiritual warfare. It's one thing for us to do that. But if we're fighting a battle against the devil and also fighting a battle against each other, nothing will hinder God's work more than that. How many of you know that we have enough battles on our hands with the devil and with our own flesh to be fighting with each other in the midst of all that? External opposition, internal opposition. And Nehemiah 6 tells us about continual opposition. This is not something he faced once. It was time and again. Look at Nehemiah 6 verse 2. Again, we meet them. Sambala and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono, that we, uh, but they thought to do me mischief. So at first they just tried to mock and ridicule and, and, and create fear among that. That didn't work. So now they try to, to distract Nehemiah, to get him away from what he was doing. And they even started to get very cunning about this. Brilliant, really, in some of their tactics. They hire a Jewish prophet who went to Nehemiah, who tried to convince Nehemiah that his life was in danger and that he needed to go into the temple to hide. And Nehemiah understands what's going on here. And he realizes that if he listens to this hired prophet and if he hides in the temple, that Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem are going to use this against him and say that all he cares about is himself. He's a man of fear. He's not a man of courage. And so these are the constant attacks that Nehemiah and the people are facing. And again, it's a reminder that if you want to build for God, expect to fight battles. And it's also a reminder that the most dangerous attacks are the ones that you and I are not expecting. No wonder Peter tells us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Sin ruins, but God renews. If you want to build for God, you're going to find yourself in battles. Number three, Nehemiah 7 through 10 teaches us that the greatest dangers that we face are not to our bodies, but to our souls. Yes, the greatest dangers that we face 
are not to our bodies, but to our souls. I bet if someone asks you, what do you think about the book of Nehemiah? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? You're probably going to say something like the building of the wall. But did you know that the wall is built and finished at the end of chapter 6? There are 13 chapters in Nehemiah. We've got seven chapters left. It's not just about this physical wall that was being built. The wall is finished. If that's all it's about, then it would end at chapter 6. But why do we have all these remaining chapters? We won't look at chapter 7, but that's a genealogical record where we have the list of all these names of the people tracing back that they are the people of God. They're the heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham. But one of the most important things happens in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. Ezra did what we have done this morning. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. So they gather all the people together, young and old, and Ezra stands above them and he reads God's word to them. Now, please don't miss this. You must understand this. Why are they doing this? Why is this so important? Ezra and Nehemiah understand something very important, that the people of God were not destroyed, their land was not destroyed, they were not sent away as slaves, that wall wasn't laying in ruins because their military failed them. They were not outmaneuvered by another nation. This was not a national defense failure. If that had been the case, they rebuilt the wall, let's build it higher, let's build it stronger. He knew we were destroyed because we left God. We were destroyed, not because our walls weren't strong enough, but because this word was not in us. That's why we were destroyed. And he knows that there's no wall big enough. There's no wall high enough that can keep God out from coming again if they turn away from him. That if they go away from God, there's no physical walls that can protect them. And there are many applications to this. But let me just make one to those of us who are parents. Parents, we can put all kinds of barriers around our children. And we should. What they watch, where they go who their friends are. But if they've not embraced God's word, none of those rules can ultimately protect them. And that's what Nehemiah understands, that more than we need these walls rebuilt, we need this word rebuilt into our lives and live out its truth. And so in chapter 8, they hear God's word. In chapter 9, look at chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It says in the twenty. And fourth day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and with earth or dirt upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. See, when the word was opened, when the book was opened, it exposed the sin and the disobedience in their life. And on one hand, it was a deeply painful experience. But look at also the great encouragement. Look at chapter 9, verse 31 and 32. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, 
Thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God who keeps covenant and mercy, let not all the troubles seem little before thee that hath come upon us, our kings, our princes, and our priests, and our prophets, and on our fathers, and all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. In chapter 9, they begin to confess their sin. You see, the Bible's like a mirror, and they got a good look at themselves as the word was opened, and they found themselves confessing their sins and getting right with God and seeing that our sins, which are many, his mercy is more, his grace that is greater. And then when you come to chapter 10, something great happens. Look at the last verse in chapter 10, Nehemiah 10, verse 39. The people have said, they've joined together now and they make a covenant together and they join together saying, we together are going to serve God. We found what we and our fathers were doing that was wrong. We've confessed that. And now we're covenanting together to serve him. And look at the last part of verse 39, the last sentence. And we will not forsake the house of our God. In other words, they're saying, we are not going to turn away from our God. We are going to follow him. We are going to serve him. And did you notice it's plural? It's not, I will not forsake the Lord, but we will not forsake the Lord. And I'm convinced that that's the problem that so many people face who profess to be Christians that they are not connected with other Christians in a close, meaningful way. I tell people at Living Hope all the time that Christianity is not a solo sport. You will not live wholly on your own. That's why we need things like D groups. That's why we need things like gathering together like this every Sunday and knowing each other and praying for each other and encouraging each other. Because it's not just I will not forsake the Lord, but we will not forsake the Lord. Well, last of all, what do we learn about this God who renews and rebuilds and restores? Sin ruins, but God renews. If you want to build for God, you're going to find yourself in battles. And the greatest dangers we face are not physical, they are spiritual. And the last thing we see is really in the form of a question. When is God's renewing work complete? So if this God who renews and restores and rebuilds, when is he finished with that? Because you see, we all love a happy ending, don't we? We hate it if the bad guy wins. If it looks like the enemy is, is winning or prevailing in the storyline, we just know in the book or in the movie that there's going to be a twist in the plot line and the good guys are going to win in the end. I mean, if you've ever seen a Western, right? The cowboy is riding off into the sunset. We just expect that, don't we? But what about the story in the book of Nehemiah? How does that all turn out? Well, chapter 11, they start to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. You can imagine there wasn't a lot of homes being bought in Jerusalem when the walls are broken down and the gates were burned. There weren't many people living there. Chapter 11, they bring people to live there. But then what happens in chapter 12 is where it really gets good. I love this. Look at chapter 12, verse 27. They have a, a temple dedication service. It says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of their places, 
to bring them to Jerusalem, to keep the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals and psalteries and with harps. So the wall is finished and they are going to have a dedication and celebration service for this wall that's been completed. Now the wall, many people believe the wall was about nine feet wide. So there's plenty of room for you to walk on top of it. And this is what's fascinating. Nehemiah brings a large amount of people on top of the wall and he splits them up into two different groups. Ezra goes in one direction and Nehemiah and his group go in the other direction. And they walk around this giant wall that's around the entire city and they're singing. They're praising God. They're blessing the name of the Lord. And look at what chapter 12 verse 43 says about this. That, that while they're, and they, they're walking and they go and they're going to meet at the temple. That's where the procession is going to end. Look what it says in verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifice and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced. So that the joy of Jer Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Hey, even the neighbors heard about this. It was this loud and joyful celebration of the goodness of God. And it leads us to a question. I mean, Nehemiah 12 is this riding off into the sunset moment. Why doesn't the book of Nehemiah end in chapter 12? Why couldn't this be the last taste we have in our mouths of the people of God in this moment? Because you see, there's 13 chapters in Nehemiah. And evidently there was a little bit of time that took place at the end of Nehemiah 12. Remember, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He goes back to where he was before to serve the king, Artaxerxes, for a time. And then in chapter 13, he comes back. And when he comes back, he found much of the same that he found before. We don't have time to get into it, and we won't. But the people are doing all kinds of things that are against God's word. And Nehemiah rebukes them. Nehemiah sees that they've invited people into the temple that are pagans and he casts their stuff out. They've married unbelieving, unbelieving and pagan wives again. Things that are taking them away from God. And again, it's much of the same. Nehemiah's heart was broken. He was righteously angry. And it, it leads us to wonder, I mean, wh why do we even have to see that part of it? Why couldn't that have just been cut out? Why couldn't we leave with the worship service so loud that even the neighboring nations could hear it? Well, I think it brings us to one of the main points of this message today. The work of reforming and renewing and restoring our lives will really never be complete until the Lord Jesus comes again. Amen. I mean, think about this. The walls have been rebuilt. The word was preached the covenant was renewed. The temple worship had been reinstated. The city of Jerusalem had been repopulated. But the people drifted away again. They had everything in place to get it right this time. And we leave with this disobedient people and a brokenhearted Nehemiah. So what's the lesson for us? Friends, we need more than laws spoken to us. And we need more than teachers to teach us. And we need more than leaders to motivate us. The lesson is that we need transformed hearts from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As good of a man as Nehemiah was, the message for us is that the people in his day, and yes, even the people in this room here today, and myself included,
We need more than someone like Nehemiah. We need someone greater than Nehemiah. Someone greater than him that can merely teach us or lead us. We need someone who can change us. And I think there are some ways that Nehemiah actually points us to Christ. I mean, Nehemiah in Nehemiah 1, what's he doing? He's weeping. He's mourning for the people of Jerusalem. And what do we read Jesus doing in Matthew 23, 37 as he's riding into Jerusalem just a few days before he'll be crucified? He's weeping, saying, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you. He's weeping just as Nehemiah. What about Nehemiah 8, where they open up the word and gather God's people to hear God's word? What did John say in John 1? That the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That God has sent us the living word in his son, Jesus, and he revealed the father to us. What about Nehemiah in chapter 13, as he's casting out all that's in the temple that shouldn't be there? How it reminds us of Jesus who went into the temple and cast over the tables of the money changers and said, you are a den of thieves. This is my father's house. Why doesn't the book of Nehemiah end with the people of God riding off into the sunset? I don't know the exact reason for that, but I think one is, is to remind us that until we get home, we're going to need to constantly be renewed. We're going to need to constantly have God rebuilding and restoring our lives. In fact, there is no riding off into the sunset until Revelation 21, when John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. And God himself shall be with them and dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more sorrow, death, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. That's the riding off into the sunset moment. And until then, until then, we're going to constantly need to gather like this. We're going to constantly need this word in us. Until then, we're going to need to be daily renewed and walking with God. We're going to need the weekly preaching of his word and the regular fellowship of God's people. Why? Because the songwriter has it right. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's what Nehemiah 13 tells us. And specific moments of revival are great. I bet all of us could look back to some service where we made some decision, some moment where God did some great work in our lives and thank God for that. I mean that. I don't make light of that. I've had some wonderful moments with Dr. Linton, with Brother Christian, with many in here that have helped me along my spiritual journey. And I look back at those pivotal moments in my life. Thank God for that. But please understand that Nehemiah is telling you something. He's shouting you something that you can't live off what God did 10 years ago. That you can't live off what happened 10 weeks ago. That you need him day by day. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. That's what Nehemiah teaches us.